When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done through them. But the residents of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, the apostles learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycanonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued proclaiming the good news. In Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened as Paul was speaking. And Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconanian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news. You should turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways. Yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Adventures and travels of Paul and Barnabas go on in chapter 14. At each stop, they have reception and opposition, but they keep going. It is something that the author, Luke, of this chapter 14, notes that they went to a Jewish synagogue. Perhaps this is an indication of the time period that Luke is writing in, where there are Christian synagogues and there are Jewish synagogues. Uh, That there are gatherings of Christians called synagogues, which we know of, and there are very clearly Jewish synagogues at this time. The split and rupture between rabbinic Judaism and Christianity is happening right here in the book of Acts. And that, that uh, split still exists today. Modern Judaism 
is not exactly the same as Judaism in the first century when Jesus went to the synagogue to pray. And neither is Christianity the same as it was in the first century when Jesus rose from the dead. There's a lot that's happened in the last 2,000 years between the groups and in their own growth and development, but they both have the same source, the same moment of split, and that split has never really changed much. The lines are fairly clearly drawn along the Messiahship of Jesus Christ for Jews and Christians, that being the major dividing line, although there's lots of other things that are shared in common. But we can see that there were um, Christian synagogues. The pattern of synagogue worship that we inherit in Christianity is very clear from the earliest days. The reading of Holy Scripture, the reverence of Holy Scripture, the explaining of Scripture, or attempts to explain it. And in the synagogues of the first century, because not everybody spoke Hebrew or could understand Hebrew or used Hebrew in day-to-day language, the sermon would often consist of a translation of that text into whatever language the people were hearing, or they would read from a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Syriac or Aramaic, as it's often called, in a language that people could understand it. And that pattern still consists. Then they would pray, and they would pray for each other. They'd pray for their world. Um, and that pattern of Christian worship is comes from the Jewish synagogue, but also from these Christian synagogues of Jewish Christians that one of them is mentioned here in chapter 14. But, and then there's a, a distinction made between unbelieving Jews and the Gentiles that they are allied with. And here we see another rift that's happening in the book of Acts between Jews that are Christians and Jews that do not believe Jesus is the Messiah which eventually becomes a large group of Jewish people that um, in an organized and individual way say, we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. and We're going to continue to worship as our ancestors have in synagogues. And as the temple is destroyed somewhere around the time of this, the writing of this book, the center of the Jewish faith is still there in Jerusalem, but for practical reasons has to be evenly distributed into synagogues around the world. But again, that, that split um, still lingers in our imagination, our consciousness, and is at the root of a lot of anti-Semitic uh, things that happen in Christianity down through the ages. Here in this time, there are more Jewish non-Christians, and there are Jewish Christians. And so the persecution tends to flow from the Jewish non-Christians to the Jewish Christians. And then when Christians get more power, they start persecuting 
the Jewish non-Christians, and there are very few Jewish Christians by that time. But that's how power works. When we get a little bit of it, we often find ourselves wielding it against the people that were very much like us when we didn't have it. The age-old sadness of our sin in humanity. But they speak the gospel, the good news of Jesus, again, going through verses in the Old Testament and explaining that the Messiah had to suffer. And some people are convinced. Um, Some are with the apostles, some are with um, the Jews from the synagogue and the Gentiles that are there with them. Um, And then they they try to stone them, so they flee to Lystra and Derby. I love that name, Derby, as a city. Just think it's kind of funny, like the hat. And off they go into the surrounding countryside. So the more persecuted they are, the more on the run they are, the more Christianity spreads. And this is how things go viral, even today. Um, The pattern of something becoming known by everybody is generally through the path of controversy. You can imagine Paul and Barnabas with bruises on their head and bodies from these stones that they've had thrown at them, huffing and puffing their way into a new village, and everybody looks out their door to see who's coming in. What happened to you? Well, let me tell you what happened to us at the last city we were in. They stoned us. Why did they stone you? Well, because we've been talking about this guy named Jesus. Oh, who's Jesus? I mean, you can see how this would have spread Christianity and the story of Jesus uh, far better or far more effectively or far more virally for whatever good or bad that is um, than uh, Paul setting up a little lecture shop um, on the corner and expecting people to be interested. And the church today is no exception. When you are wounded by unbelief, when you are wounded by the world, when you are wounded by the grind of life, by the economic system and principalities and powers that exist, when you are suffering, when you are mistreated, when the goodness and love that God has poured into your heart is rejected and and unappreciated, you take that. And you take that remembrance and that event, and you find where Jesus sustains you in that. You find where the life of the crucified Savior who hung between earth and sky for you met you in that place, met you in that dark pit of despair and, and uncertainty, and gave you hope and comfort and a future and some vision of your own resurrection. And you take that and you tell people about it. And that is ultimately how the Christian faith still spreads today. It is not by us, um, it is not by our trying to argue with people of why they should need, why they need to be Christians. All we can do is tell our story. And that is what Paul and Barnabas are doing here as they stagger and stumble into these villages after the rejection of these prominent 
places of intellectual achievement. There's a man there that can't walk in Lystra. He's never been able to walk. He has been disabled from birth. Um, Here the NRSV uses the word cripple. So often our um, language about disability goes through changes because we want to be sensitive to people's hurts and we don't want to see disabled people or refer to them or us as being something other than human or other than us. And often their language betrays our deep-seated aversion towards people that are different from us and have different abilities. Language shifts all the time. Words that are now unacceptable to be used in discourse or in any way um, certainly had their place in time, but we shift with them. And, And here using these words, we must be careful how we talk about this man who cannot use his feet, has never walked. If you've experienced immobility and the inability to move, you know how how draining that is on life, how hard it is to see yourself as one of the people, as, as a part of a community. And Paul, um, and he listens to Paul. I think there's something here that is in the story that the one person who listens to Paul in this whole story, there's one guy who listens to Paul. And that is the guy who can't get away from him, who can't move. He is immobilized there on the street. And he listens. He is a good listener. And Paul is a good speaker. And good speakers require good listeners. And good listeners don't always need good speakers, that's for sure. But this listening happens. And he gets the message of Jesus that Jesus can heal him. What is it in Paul's sermon about Jesus that indicates that Jesus can heal him? I think it's because Paul is talking about the life of Jesus, what he did when he was here on this earth. The signs that accompanied his Messiahship were the healing of the sick and the casting out of demons. Those were the calling card of Jesus as the Messiah. And so um, Paul looks at him, And seeing that he had the faith to be healed, he says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. Now, this is a strange thing to say to someone who can't walk. Stand up on your feet. And we as 20th, 21st century Christians kind of see this maybe through the eyes of a TV faith healer who's grabbing people's crutches and throwing them away and you can walk and And maybe there's some sort of self-improvement in the story. I don't know. But this guy has tried to walk um, probably many times. And if you can see him as a child trying to move about without being able to walk, trying to keep up with his friends, trying to have a life, wondering if he'll ever fall in love, wondering if he'll ever get married or have a home or and all of those dreams dying again and again and he has tried to walk he has tried to walk so many times that he probably um still dreams of walking 
We don't know anything about him. I'm speculating here, but to me, it's the most absurd thing to say to someone like this, stand up on your feet. But that's exactly what he does, and he starts to walk. The miracles of Jesus were just like this in many cases, that the speech act of you are healed, stand up and walk, take up your bed and walk, Jesus says to numerous people, the speech is the act, and the act is the speech of the healing word. That when Jesus says, stretch out your hand to the man with the withered hand, it is in the stretching of his hand that the miracle happens. And here is another lesson of faith. It is when we listen and move in the direction God has told us to move that the miracles happen. And yet the miracle is always from God. It is not us who moves. It is not this man who stands up. And yet it is this man who stands up. Every miracle in our life, every resurrection is us and God. But it's always more God than us. It is always more the power of God than our own power. And yet, we still stand. We still rise up. And here, when everyone sees this, they assign the power of this miracle to Zeus. They call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. Barnabas is the great god Zeus in the sky, vengeful and petty with immense power. And Paul is Hermes, the messenger of the gods, the speaker of the gods, the eloquent, um, demonstrative person. They're speaking in this language, Lyconian, which is most likely some form of Greek. But they are seeing Paul and Barnabas through their own eyes. Um, They bring oxen to sacrifice and garlands and flowers. It's a big party. And Paul, you can imagine just the sheer shock of this. This has never happened to any of the apostles before. Whenever there's a healing miracle in a Jewish context, people are cheering and happy and excited. But nobody says it's Zeus, it's Hermes. Nobody does that. And here they're doing it. And Paul tries to calm him down. He says, friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you. And we bring you good news. I think this is the core of the apostolic message that is passed down from clergy person to clergy person. And I hope gets communicated to their flocks. But we are just mortals. We are just mortals. And I've never done a miracle like this and probably never will. But um, we are just mortals. All of us. Every single person in our church is a mere mortal. (laughs) And yet we have the good news, as he says. We are just mortals with the good news. We are fellow travelers pointing towards the inn. We are not anybody special. Ultimately, we are just people that heard the good news just a little bit before you have. And so they give this little sermon, which 
the ultimate point of this little sermon that they give about who God is and who they should worship is very simply gratitude. That God gave us a lot of nice stuff to eat, gave us life, and we ought to be thankful. And it is that impulse which is the first place of their worship. Notice that Paul, in contrast to Peter and Paul, when they speak to Jewish audiences, they go right into the Old Testament and they start explaining who Jesus is in light of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. Here, with these non-Jewish people, who are very friendly, but they are very clearly wrong about who Paul and Barnabas are, they start with gratitude. They start with creation. And I think this is a, maybe a better place to start for most people um, in, in our communities, people that are living in a secular utopia in many ways, um, a, a state, a nation that has well guarded itself from some of the extremes of religion and um, always guards itself against that, although that is constantly shifting. But the fact that you can exist without being part of any religion um, is a well-known fact today. Um, that it is not a required part of your identity in any way, shape, or form. And so to, to people that are in this world, I think it's really good to start with this concept of gratitude. Like what we have comes from somewhere, and we ought to thank that somewhere. We ought to thank the God that gave us life. And it is in cultivating that gratitude for all of life, for our life, for the lives of others, for nature, for the sky, for the plants, for the animals, everything around us. When we cultivate that gratitude, it can only go one place, and that place is God. And that God that that place goes to has to be personable in some way. Otherwise, it's really not gratitude. Um, and we find the personhood of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That incarnation of God in human flesh is the ultimate uh, way of saying thank you. Uh, that God gives that gift of love to us, and we give that gift of thankfulness to him, to Jesus Christ himself. And I think that's a better way to approach people in our day, and Paul does that. And so the mission continues of God's love and grace in the world. Amen. Today the church remembers James the Apostle. There, the name James is the name Jacob, and um, is used for a number of people in the Bible. Um, the brother of John is the James we celebrate today. He is often known as James the Greater to distinguish him from the other apostle of the same name who's commemorated on May 1st with Philip and also distinguished from James the brother of our Lord who speaks at the Jerusalem Council. Again, there's lots of confusion on who he is. But we do know a couple things about him from the Gospels. He was the son of a Galilean fisherman, Zebedee. And with his brother John, they left their home and his trade of fishing 
in obedience to the call of Christ. With Peter and John, he seems to have belonged to an especially privileged group, the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, whom Jesus chose to be witnesses to the transfiguration, to the raising of Jairus' daughter, and to his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, James was there in those moments. Apparently, James shared John's hot-headed disposition. Jesus nicknamed both James and John Boadrenes, which is translated the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Not really sure why they were named the sons of thunder, but we can imagine it had to do with their temper or expressive or hot-headed disposition. Um, James expressed willingness to share the cup of Christ um, and, and the suffering of Christ in the Gospels. And he is recorded as the first martyr, um, first of the apostles to die for Jesus. We covered his account, that account in Acts a couple days ago, where when Peter is arrested, he's arrested because James has been executed by Herod. The Acts of the Apostles records about that time John or Herod the king laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. According to an old tradition, the body of James was taken to Compostela, Spain, which has been a shrine for pilgrims for centuries. And that is the old tradition of the translation of James's remains as an apostle there on the coast of Spain. But we remember him uh, so much for his uh, willingness to go with Jesus into some very difficult places, um, for his uh, being present at some of the critical moments of Jesus's life, and for bearing witness to who Jesus was with his silent death. We have no words from him um, in, the, in the Gospels. Well, we do have, or we do have words from in the Gospels, but not in the book of Acts. We just have the fact that he is martyred. And his silence speaks volumes in our um, Christian faith. O oh, gracious God, we remember before you today your servant and apostle, James, first among the twelve to suffer martyrdom, for the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you will pour out upon the leaders of your church that spirit of self-denying service by which alone they may have true authority among your people through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.